tonight. Shall we turn uh, in our Bibles uh, to Revelation uh, chapter 2? Revelation chapter 2, and um, we're going to read from verse number 12. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. Let's pray for a moment. Father, these are your words. Give us the the awe and the reverence before them that they require. Help us to understand. Help us to see and to believe. And by faith, to trust in Christ and live for him. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, at the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have, some, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I'm Elena reading at verse number 17. Do you ever think that your local church here in Dundonald is in danger? And I wonder what you think that danger would be. A significant drop in giving a split over personalities, uh, the mass exodus of all the young people, uh, people leaving for the church down the road. What would the danger be that your local church could face? Well, no, none of those are the most pressing danger. The most pressing danger is shown in our passage tonight, and it is a very real one. We have seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Seven churches which represent the New Testament church in all centuries. The complete or whole church, such as she is. Warts and all. And often plenty of them. But the chief danger is false teaching. That's the chief danger. Sadly, in the middle three churches, there is downward progression. We have here in Pergamum uh, that there are some who hold to false teaching. In Thyatira, next week, we'll find out that there is is actual teaching of of Jezebel in the church. Actual teaching. And then in Sardis, the week after that or so, we'll see that there is actual death as a result. You see the progression. False doctrine starts in the people present, uh, the members, and then it's taught from the pulpit, uh, and then it goes, the church goes on life support, uh, and eventually she dies. 
It's a sobering thought, isn't it? That we're only ever three steps away from death as a church, even if we're at our Bible teaching height, as it were, if there's such a thing. But that is what the early part of Revelation is teaching us. But, of course, one of the functions of a warning letter like this one and like these is that there is still time. That's what warnings do in Scripture. There is still time at stage one and stage two. And even as life is ebbing away at stage three, there's still time to correct. There's still time to repent. There's still time to return to the word of Christ. And the one who knows says so. Firstly tonight, consider with me, I know where you live. I know where you live. Jesus says to the church in Pergamon, verse 13, I know where you dwell. He says you're situated in a bad neighborhood. Where was the center of pagan worship in the region? Was it Ephesus? Which of course had plenty of it with its temple to the goddess Artemis. Which is famous throughout Asia and indeed throughout the known world. As we read about in Acts chapter 19. Was it Smyrna too with its coveted new temple that other cities wanted as we saw last time? Well, if you're going on the sheer number of temples and shrines alone, well, the answer is Pergamum. It's on the site of the town of Bergama today. No tourist could miss the sheer plethora on the streets and hilltops for all to see in Pergamum. If you've ever been to Thailand, you'll get the idea of this. As we move around that delivery driver circuit that we, as we see on the map in western Turkey, or Turkey, as they've changed their official name the other week. Uh, we come to the place of Pergamum tonight. Ephesus and Smyrna are on the coast, as you can see. Pergamum is inland. It has a steep hill that rose to more than a thousand feet. And near the top is an immense altar to Zeus, the chief Greek god. The ruler, the protector, the father of all gods and humans as they would have been told. This sets the tone for the place. There was a major temple to Dionysos, the god of the harvest. That's where you went when food was getting dear. Uh, or uh, there was also a temple to Asclepios, the savior god, which is where you went when you were sick. He's the god of healing. You went there to get well, similar to what a, a Roman Catholic pilgrim might do, at drinking the spring water at Lourdes in France today. You need to get well, so you go to the right place. But there is also what is known as the imperial cult. That's the worship of Caesar. That's the worship of Mother Rome. In 29 BC, the citizens of Pergamum built and dedicated a temple to Emperor Augustus. You say, that, that, that doesn't sound that strange. But it was an important marker. Because Caesar Augustus was not being immortalized in bricks and mortar after his death, but he was very much still alive at the time. And he was being worshipped every day in the temple. So this was the center of worship for the imperial cult. Pergamum was a place to be if you wanted to worship Caesar and the deified Roman imperial system that made up the world as you knew it. This is where you went. Whereas a good citizen, you bowed and you offered and you revered. Pergamon is a strong center of paganism and false worship visually. We have countries heavily given over to, to, to Buddhism and Hinduism like this today. 
I can think of sites I've witnessed in Southeast Asia. Perhaps you can do the same. Where Buddhist temples are aplenty and people are bowing to worship even in public places. That's a common thing. And Christians walking around or maybe on mission trips to such places speak of the sense of darkness. Speak of the sense of evil holding sway. Jesus says, this place is where Satan's throne is and where uh, Satan dwells, verse 13. Now, some people take this very literally. Not so much that Satan has an actual throne there, but some people speak of territorial spirits and, and places that are geographically Satan's, using Jesus' words here about the city of Pergamum. And words like those found in Daniel 10, 13, where the kingdom of Persia appears to have a particular demonic spirit attached to it. Some assume that fallen angels, demons, have been given some type of responsibility over a certain definable area of land. Now, this is not primary doctrine. Some may disagree with me here. But I'm not convinced, personally, that this is so geographical and land-focused as if, if all the people suddenly moved out, that this would still be a satanic stronghold, this particular geographical piece of land. Now, my understanding is that it's more about the people there. People given over to idolatry and plenty of them. People practicing the worship of evil and sheer evil. Very few, if any, gospel light in the local population. Very many in the kingdom of darkness makes a place a stronghold of Satan. The Bible never explicitly teaches a hierarchy of demonic authority in places in parts of the world. It's a kind of inference rather than the teaching of the Bible. So it's wise to be careful here. What the Bible is clear about is that demons are at work in the world and that believers are very much involved in a battle against them. The term territorial spirits has in fact led some Christians to believe it's their duty to go and engage these, um, these demons in spiritual warfare in these particular places. And that's the, that's, that's the issue we have with this. Because that can't be justified by scripture. In fact, there's not a single instance in the Bible where someone actively seeks out a demon in order, in order to engage it. Now we're more on the defensive, aren't we? Christ attacks our dangerous enemy and he wins for us. So we don't fear Pergamum has many pagans, many idol-worshipping sites, and much idol worship. And so it is given over to Satan. That's the way this is to be understood. And the one who knows, well, what does he say? He says that this is where God's people live. God's people dwell as a minority in the same place that Satan has many followers. This is where you dwell. Think locally with me for a moment. And you think, well, not so many Buddhists and Hindu people in, in Dundonald. Some, yes, for sure, with their, with their shrines in their homes, some of them, if they're more particularly, um, particularly involved in that uh, religious system. Some idols in their homes, perhaps. But not that many people. And think not so many Roman Catholic people in Dundonald. Yes, some for sure with their, with their uh, icons and, and idols perhaps that they, that they have and are, are so devoted to. But of course our city is still given over to idols too. People just don't bow on the street like they do in Southeast Asia. Or they don't bow on the street like they do in Lourdes in France. But they worship other things. 
Everyone is a worshiper at heart. We cannot help it. We just reject the proper place and find replacements. The body beautiful, maybe muscular, or maybe wrinkle-free. The football team, the social scene, the the children, the grandchildren, the, the weekend away, me time, the wardrobe, the car. It could be a lot of things, couldn't it? But we'll find a replacement. We always do. Where God is replaced on the throne by a rival. The things that we would complete the sentence, I could not live without my whatever it is. That's our God. Or the things that we don't even realize go in that sentence. For it's often very subtle idolatry. Very subtle. The blatant idolatry of Pergamum makes it a hard place to be a Christian. We can say that for sure. To be a local church in Pergamum is a very difficult thing because they're bombarded by cults and false gods and worship wherever they turned. When they looked out the window, it was there. When they went to the market, it was there. When they broke up from morning church, it was there. And we have good evidence of the difficulty, don't we? Of that demonic influence and destructive power, don't we? For one of their church members, one of their own called Antipas, well, he's been killed, hasn't he? We read about this. He's been killed among you, says Jesus. Does that mean they were together at the time? We couldn't be sure. He's been killed among you. He refused to bow the knee to Caesar. He couldn't bring himself to give Caesar the title that belonged to Christ. That's the title, Lord. He would not compromise. He would not hold a a middle position of, of knowing really who his Lord was himself, but just sort of being disingenuous by giving a nod to Caesar and the imperial cult that was expected of him by everybody else. No, he wouldn't hold the middle position like that. And it cost him. It cost him his very life. He's faithful to the witness of Christ. He's followed Christ, the faithful witness of chapter 1, verse 5, and it has led him in following Christ to his early death. Now, don't downplay this as a Bible story. She wouldn't do that. This really happened. This really happened. Jesus says, I know where you live. And, and they live in a place where someone from their own membership has been killed for following Christ. Jesus then says, I know who you worship with. I know who you worship with. Jesus commands the church family in Pergamum, doesn't he? What does he command them for? He commands them for holding fast to my name and refusing to recant or deny my faith, even when faced with, well, what they all knew happened to their recently martyred fellow church member. They worshipped with Antipas, and now he's no longer with them. They're still worshipping even though they knew what happened to him. They're still holding fast to to the name, says the Lord Jesus. Holding fast to Jesus' name is a way of, of describing believing in the first place and continuing in gospel truth. Jesus' name is all of who he is and what he has achieved for us. In the first chapter of John we read, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. That's what's happened to the church members. They've come to believe in his name and they've been saved in that name and now they have to continue in in like manner holding fast to his name. 
But is naming Jesus enough? We could unite with many people if we made that the mark of Christian belief, couldn't we? Have you named Jesus in your religious position? Yes, okay, welcome into our church family. We could do that. No, contained in, the phrase, uh, in those phrases, holding fast to my name or, uh, or not denying my faith in verse 13, well, there is a whole series and a, and a whole lot of biblical truth needing to be accepted. A whole series of biblical teaching that Jesus gives us about who he is and what he's done. That Jesus is very God. He's the second person of the Trinity. We're, we're on Trinity Sunday, aren't we? He's the second person of the Trinity, so he could pay the infinite penalty required for sin against an infinite God. He can do that. Jesus is fully man, and so he's able to to be our substitute, to take our place. That Jesus dies on the cross to make atonement for our sins. That Jesus rose again the third day in completion of the task. In other words, Jesus is the saviour. And also that Jesus, what Jesus teaches and what he says, well that goes. He's in charge. That Jesus requires exclusive worship. He won't have you bowing to another. You can't do that. And that Jesus is returning one day to judge the world. Jesus is Lord, in other words. Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Lord. You have to understand that. that those, are, those are primary doctrines we must accept and affirm. We'll, we'll talk about this in our membership classes starting after the service. Things like the Trinity, you've got to understand that. You've got to, you've got to accept that. You've got to accept the deity and the humanity of Christ. You've got to accept that the atonement is, is, is by substitution. Christ for us. You've got to understand that he's coming back. You must believe these to be a Christian. Now there are other secondary items that, that we teach from this pulpit. Important and usually the things that, that make denominations separate. Separate, like, like baptism and covenants in scripture or dispensations, like the doctrines of grace, like complementarianism. And they're not unimportant because they affect how much, much of how you understand the Bible, but they're not salvation issues. Plenty of good saved uh, Presbyterians and Anglicans and, and brethren and independent Methodists and you could go on and on and on. It's not unimportant, but it's not salvation issue. And then there are still other things that we are at liberty to differ over. Views on the millennium head covering, maybe whether or not there are territorial spirits. You see, there are lots of things we could debate about. And we could, although I, of course, as a preacher, do have my opinion on them and will teach, them, will teach my convictions. If you have a preacher that doesn't teach his convictions, he's a dead duck. That's what I, that's what I believe. The church in Pergamum have heard and understood and believed the truth. Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Lord. And now they must continue in this manner, even though one they worship with has been killed for this. But Jesus has issues, doesn't he? There are issues. Verse 14. It's not all good. There's something something up. But I have a few things against you, says Jesus, the Lord of the church. There are some among them who... Who are way off. Some among them, some that, that, that they worship with, who, are, who hold to, to false teaching. You have some there, is Jesus' way of putting it there in verse 14. These are not 
errors of a young believer or slips of the tongue in a prayer publicly made, but dangerous errors and heresy. This is what we're talking about here. And like the famous Trojan horse, some have perhaps gotten in among them unawares, or, or maybe some have, have, have started the course well and true and have slowly but surely began to imbibe the spirit of the age or whatever they're surrounded by in the pagan culture. And it's dangerous. It's very dangerous. Jesus calls it two things. He calls it the teaching of Balaam, verse 14, and the teaching of the Nicolaitans in verse 15. Balaam, of course, is famous in the Bible for his, well, he's not that famous, it's his talking donkey, isn't that right? But this is more of a reference to Numbers 22, 23, and 24, where Balaam, well, he functions as a kind of how-to on how to pervert the people of God. That's what he is. Because he's been summoned by Balak, the king of Moab, and Balak wants Balaam to curse God's people, the people of Israel. But every time Balaam opens his mouth, well, blessing comes out instead of cursing. So Balaam is then motivated a little further by, by money, uh, and he comes back with another plan and, and teaches Balak a way to entice the people of Israel to sin in two, in two ways. Eating food offered to idols and sexual immorality with Moabite women. That's what's, what happens there. Of course, these are not matters of kind of debatable nature or conscience or in the, new, in, the, in the church because God's word is very clear and unambiguous on these matters. Because if you remember in Acts chapter 15, they, they were beginning to accept the, the, disciple, the Gentiles for the first time after the Jerusalem council. Uh, they were accepting they were true believers. And, part of, and they give them instruction going forward as to what they needed to know and this is, this is what they said. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep these yourself from these, you will do well. It's precisely what they're doing. And it's been precisely told to be completely in error. The teaching of the Nicolaitans is, is, is actually quite hard to pin down. Chris was talking about this as well. We're not exactly certain as to what this is, but most commentators believe that this again is a reference to eating food offered to idols and sexual immorality. Cultural compromise in idolatry. Cultural compromise in sexual sin. Because, of course, in the Roman world of the day, that was rife. It's not just today. In the Bible, idolatry is often presented as unfaithfulness to your covenant with God, like breaking your marriage. In, Bible, in the Bible, there's plenty of linkage between those two things. And some gathering in the church, in Pergamum, are practicing the very thing that Scripture clearly teaches it against. Sexual sins and compromising with pagan idol worship. Those who compromised probably had a similar view to what Paul met, was met with in Galatia. Sure, we're no longer under the law. Don't worry a thing about it. We can continue to sin so that we can enjoy grace even more. 
Sure, the Lord understands that we're weak. He understands that everyone is doing this in Pergamum. It's the first century. Come on, get with the times. And then we're the first century Christians. It's expected, you know. But that's not how God saw it. It's not how God saw it in Numbers chapter 25, the reference that's been made to back in the Old Testament. Because you know what happened then? 24,000 people died as a result of this. 24,000. He doesn't see it as a light thing at all. He sees it as deadly. Jesus says, thirdly, I know what you must do. I know what you must do. Jesus spells out the remedy here, doesn't he? And it's simple and it's clear. Verse 16, two words. Therefore, repent. They must repent. They must understand that they are wrong. They must be told as much. This is false teaching. They are sinning. And they must stop, stop and confess anew Jesus as Lord and place their trust in him as their only saviour and only hope. The purity of the church in this regard must be protected at all costs. And the threat of not repenting, what's it? Is it a big deal to Jesus? Absolutely. It's stated for all with ears to hear, I will come soon and wage war against them. With the sword of my mouth. The same sword is, of course, mentioned in verse 12. As the letter begins, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. This is the one who, if disobeyed, will intervene directly and decisively so. And it's the sword of my mouth in verse 16. That, that sounds a little odd, doesn't it? The sword of my mouth. But of course, the, the sword of the Spirit is, of course, the word of God. It's the sword of his mouth because the way of victory is by his word. It's the word of truth, the gospel, which Jesus has spoken, which leads to, to conquest. That's the scalpel of Christ's word that, that lays bare our needs and our sinful hearts. For it is the word of God that cuts away at our feeble attempts to, to save ourselves and stabs at the heart of any other apparent way of improving our situation. Jesus wields the double-edged sword. And that is how he has led us to salvation. But, of course, the very gospel of Christ, which rescues those who will listen, destroys those who will not. Those who will not repent. Of course, Balaam, he was killed by a sword, incidentally, in Numbers 31. It's no accident, that. And the same will happen to the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans here in Pergamum. Finally, we see, I know that you'll know me. For those who do hold fast at my name, says Jesus, for those who do not deny my faith, says Jesus, to the one who conquers in him, the reward is, is presented here. These uh, letters to the churches, they always have a little trail back to chapter 1, and they always have an arrow to the end of the, of the book of Revelation. That's what happens. And Jesus looks to uh, the reward here. Uh, the, the, the trail back to chapter 1 is that... Uh, sword of, of the mouth and the faithful witness of, of um, the, the brother who died. But the, the look to the end is, is the reward, isn't it, that Jesus speaks about for those who, who follow him to the end. He promises two things to those who, who conquer, to those who hold fast to his word. And they're here in verse 17. 
They are hidden manna and a white stone. Now, what's that all about, you ask? Hidden manna and a white stone. There, there's a hidden jar of manna in the Old Testament. Do you know where it is? It's hidden inside the Ark of the Covenant. The bread of heaven that it speaks of, well, that's Christ himself, isn't it? The one who said, I am the bread of life. And, of course, he's presented as way better than that food offered to idols that you shouldn't be touching. I'm the bread of life. The white stone, well, it's a little bit more debated because it's white for purity, that's for sure, with that sexual immorality in mind. That's, it's purity, right? Uh, but, uh, but in addition to that, some think it's a reference to uh, the white stones of the Urim and Thummim that the high priest wore on his person in the Old Testament. Some think it's a reference to rewards that you get when you win a race that allow you into a banquet. You get a white stone and you can go to the banquet in, in the Roman world. That's what would have happened. Which is a little bit like your entry into heaven as a reward for finishing the race. But either way, the answer is, well, it's Jesus. For the secret name, of course, has to be Jesus. For the name is the name, for his name is the, is the, is the way in, the, the way on, and the chief glory of heaven when we get there. It's him, isn't it? For there's no other name among men by which we must be saved. And he's the high priest. And he's certainly the bread of life. What we believe matters, brothers and sisters. What we hold to matters. We have core beliefs in our statement of faith that we agree to as church members because it matters. Yet, of course, our culture is not very keen. Well, our culture is very keen on tolerance as an alternative. To say, you know what? It's not my belief, but who am I to disagree with him or who am I to disagree with her? Each to their own. You know, everyone's entitled to their own way of looking at That's more popular, isn't it? No one really wants to stick their head above the parapet and cause any unnecessary issues. But Jesus says, if there's an issue, there's an issue. And it must be weeded out. Of course, the imperial cult has long gone. There's nobody worshipping the Caesars today or Mother Room in that sense of its empire back in the first century. But the false teaching and false prophet of Revelation lives on in every single non-Christian religion and philosophy and every so-called Christian religion and philosophy that denies the truth of Christ as Lord and Savior. It lives on. The most pressing danger is doctrinal compromise. Jesus says no. Jesus is intolerant to error. And so must his church be. We must be careful who we permit into teaching positions in church. We must be on the watch for subtle compromise. We must not accept watered-down gospels or, or even in the minds of our members before it even gets near our pulpit. Because the danger is too great to sleep on these matters. The cost is too high. And the Spirit couldn't be more clear in what he says to the churches. The danger 
is real. But we know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Our Father, we recognize the tendency to compromise in the culture around us, in our own hearts. We recognize the tendency to, to say that's just a little problem when Christ says such a thing is a big problem. We recognize those idols in each of our hearts, Father, that want to take your place. But please give us that God-given, clear, unambiguous view of your word that says, this is what God says, and who am I to differ? And we pray for that boldness and that confidence in your word that Christ has said it and I believe it and that's good enough about such matters as can destroy our church in this local place and we pray these things and ask for your help as we humbly submit to your word in Jesus name.